0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth, I'm your host Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a multi-hyphenate talent whose prolific output has made him a name to know in the genre landscape. As a performer, his voluminous list of credits include Escape the Night, Deadly Revisions, Ugly Sweater Party, Love That Girl, and Garden Party Massacre, which he also wrote, produced, and directed a multi-award winning actor, writer, director, producer, and so much more. Please welcome horror renaissance man, Gregory Blair.
1: Well, thank you. That was quite an introduction. <laughs>
0: well, I think if uh, you know, you're know you going to come on the show and you have the credits that you do, you deserve the introduction. Oh,
1: well, I love that. I'm packaging you up and taking you home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, I mean, obviously, just even from the intro alone, it, you have such uh, a, a laundry list of things that you've done. And I want to dig into some of that. But first, before we even, we even get there, uh, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest? And it is simply this. Why? Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Uh, why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think genre audiences are pulled into horror? But why horror?
1: Okay. Well, I will answer both of those and add a third Excellent. sort of element to that. Um, we love a
0: rule of threes here.
1: Okay. Swell. <laughs> um, so why horror in general, I think, is probably been talked to us I won't spend a lot of time on it. I think it's about, A, that it's one of our primal... Uh, our primal draws, you know, fear comes from you know it's been around forever, the fight or flight, it's part of who we are, it's part of humanity, so it's a it's a universal thing. Sure. so I, that's part of what makes that draw exist. Uh, and then the other side of it is that adrenaline rush that you get from being scared. It makes your heart race and whatnot. And so like a roller coaster, some people like that and some people don't. But if you do, then that's where the appeal is. Um, So it's those two things, being able to sort of face your fear uh, in a safe space, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, that kind of a thing. And and work out stuff too, like you would in a dream.
0: Right, like it's a a controlled fear, so then you can kind of get that cathartic release Without dealing with,
1: like, the existential fear of the world. Exactly, exactly. Um, same thing with uh, tear jerkers, I think. You know, you get to go to that place and cry, and then you feel better.
0: Well, that's interesting, because I've, I've not really... I've heard people equate horror and comedy before, because it's like ah. the beats of laughter and the beats of fear yes. can often be manipulated. It's all about controlling an audience's breathing. But I think you're the first guest in the history of the show that's ever mentioned uh, kind of the correlation between... A drama and horror, of course. Horror and it has roots in drama because right. all, all performance does. But that's interesting. You you think the uh, the tear it's a release as well, and it would be.
1: Yeah, and well, I'll, and I'll get back to that. Okay, if we can, I'll jump now to um, why horror for me, uh, which will touch a little bit in both directions. But um, I was a I was a pretty odd kid. I was underweight, I was undersize, Uh, I I had to have operations on just about every feature on my face, so I was not the cutest kid, I was very odd, the guys would all go out and want to play tag football, and I'd want to make a movie. (laughs) So, you know, it was like, I was the weird kid a little bit, I don't want to blow that into proportion or any out of proportion or anything, but that sense of being uh, not an outcast, but an oddball, I think is very much a part of the horror genre in a couple of ways. Um number 1 I think there are people because it's a smaller it's a genre loved by a smaller group of people we sort of connect and I think that's what people who are feel like they're oddballs or outcasts they want connection I mean who doesn't but right. I think it's a special thing there that's why there's people use the term horror family for people who like horror so it gives you a sense of belonging so there's that and um I think also there's a lot of uh, the person who feels like an outcast represented in horror. Usually the final girl is the outcast. Look at uh, Laurie Strode in Halloween. You know, she's not the one who's going out and partying and drinking and having sex. So she ends up becoming the hero. Um, And that's the good side of it. The bad side of it is you could be Carrie and end up killing a lot of people (laughs) for being bullied and blah, blah, blah.
0: Well, it's interesting you cite those two examples because over the course of the show, uh, Carrie tends to be one of the most referenced movies for a lot of queer horror filmmakers because mm. of the you know otherness that Carrie experiences, right. feeling sort of bullied and the ostracized nature of, of of her life sure. and sort of what that looks like through a horror lens. But recently, uh, the, the conversation about Laurie Strode has been coming up a lot, too, because a lot of times when we discuss otherness and horror, there is sort of that instant leap to the monster, to the creature from the Black Lagoon or Frankenstein's monster. or Like, that is the personification of otherness. And, I, and it is. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The final girl, especially during that era, kind of represents an otherness that we as people relate to. Right. As you said, Lori's not the one who's out there partying and having sex or whatever, but her friends are. Right. And they're these popular girls and even though she's part of that group, she feels outside of it. Exactly. And that's that otherness that I think is really fascinating. So I'm really, I I love that you picked those two examples
1: because what better sides of the same coin, really? Kind of. I mean, really, because Carrie is a tragic character and had she not had this hadn't the i mean obviously it's the story but had those events not happened she might have prevailed and you know what i mean had a better life and finally told her mother to go to hell or whatever (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) haha but um so yeah i think it's a big part of it so now why horror the third part This is the part I think is the most, uh, when you first said it, this is what I thought of. And my answer, which I'll explain, is why not? Sure. And what that goes to is, I think, I love that it's, it's provocative when it's coming from another horror film lover. Right. But I think when it comes from outside... I think there's this judgmental element to it. It's always people looking at you with this face that's sort of scrunched up. Why horror? What's wrong with you? why Why do you like that horrible, icky stuff? Um, and it's that it's that that judgmental element that I think is fascinating because really, horror is simply a genre that elicits fear, right. That's its job. And fear is an emotion, just like, uh, this is why I told you we'd come back to it, drama elicits tears. Right. And comedy elicits laughs. So why is laughter, those are all three just different emotions. Why is one so vilified and so looked down on? Uh, Understanding that, uh, yeah, it's probably the one people like the least, if they had to pick. Which one would you like to experience? But some people like to experience it for other reasons we talked about. But it's that looking down on it that I think is very prevalent. You never or almost, I've never heard people say to an actor, why drama? Right. Or even why comedy that often? um, It's always why horror? And it is interesting, too,
0: that people do rush to praise movies that make them feel bad. Emotionally, in the way that a drama does. I mean, we, we we always during the the autumn and Oscar season see a lot of movies that take us through like you know the long dark tea time of the soul. Right. Uh,
1: and I love that phrase. <laughs> uh, well,
0: liberally borrowed from Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. I did not come up with that. <laughs> uh, but I uh, do think that, and I love dramas. I mean, I love all sorts of. Oh, me of too. Film. I love all genres. But there is something interesting to be said that you know you go and see a movie. Like the English Patient, or you know, some of these movies that really take you to a dark emotional place, yeah. and they're celebrated. Oh, and horror takes you to a dark place, but maybe because it puts a fantastical
1: lens on it, there is a judgment, and that's fascinating. Totally, to me. I in my first film, *In Deadly Revisions*, Bill Oberst Jr. plays uh, Grafton Torn, and he plays a horror film writer, and in this one moment in the film uh, this is so funny, he's being interviewed and he's being asked this question about don't you think it's terrible to put all of these horrible images in our heads and he says, and I'm totally paraphrasing because I don't remember the dialogue, it's forever ago uh, he says something to the effect of Well, you let a war picture like Saving Private Ryan or Platoon be as gory as all get out with blood and body parts flying everywhere, and it wins Academy Awards. But if you have a horror movie do exactly the same thing, people poo-poo it and call it trash.
0: Exactly. And I remember kind of, it was the mid-thousands when we had sort of that height of what people would, air quotes, refer to as torture porn, hostile, saw. And I remember, I mean, those are not necessarily my preferred Mm subgenre of horror, but... What I found interesting is is the images of those are so visceral to people, they tend to leap immediately to that. Like, I could never watch that. This is not a genre for me. But then at the same time in the theater as, like, Saw and Hostel, we had The Passion of the Christ, which to me was a far more violent movie right. than studio-produced
1: Saw. You know, it was just so fascinating I have never walked out of a horror film. I've actually never walked out of any film with the exception of Platoon. I walked out of that. I couldn't, I just, I was like, nope, I'm done. And I have reasons for that, but it's not important. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, yeah, it's it's a lot about, uh, I think, tone right. and intent and all sorts of other things beyond simply what's put on the screen. Do you suppose,
0: because we are talking about This otherness and sort of the lens by which we look at horror and I've been I was thinking about it while you were you were talking the idea that yes as horror fans and horror creators it is a unique experience that people will ask us invariably well why horror it's why I opened the show with that question but there also is the, the derision that you get from people who don't care for the genre but horror I guess you know for me is is By its very definition, a genre of subversion. So when it's done right, you can utilize monsters and otherworldly things to represent something that's very real. Of course. And I think that maybe people who are leery of horror don't like it because they know that the monsters are them.
1: Oh, I love that. I would love, and I would love to think that there m- there was a wide enough population that had that kind of perspicacity. But I think you're being highly optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would like to think so. I mean, you know, any
0: any evening news viewing can tell me that. I don't know that people are quite thinking about that. But uh, no, it's very interesting, um, and I like that you took three divergent paths to discuss uh, your connection to it.
1: Oh, it's just. That's what came to me, so there you go,
0: so you mentioned while you were talking about your personal connection to horror how you uh by your own uh you know definition were an oddball kid mm-hmm. and uh, you didn't feel like you were doing the things that other kids wanted to do. you wanted to go make movies, so let's talk a little bit about your origins were was that something from the beginning you were always interested in film? do you like recall a moment when you like this was this was it, I want to do this?
1: Well, I think I always knew I wanted to act. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that was on film or not, that wasn't... I think I was pretty much a equal opportunity kind of uh, the way I, I thought of it. Because um, as a kid, I pretty much got into theater first. Right. I did not get into film first. Um, I think it was probably watching films. I mean, obviously, you have to see it to know you want to do it, I right. think. Because um, I... I used to watch, I think it was on Sunday afternoons. They used to have these horror films. Um, They were all, you know, from old old films that could be on television at that hour, and I'm sure they were horribly edited now that I think about it because it was (laughs) 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and little kids were watching it like me. So I'm sure they were sanitized and, and, and bastardized in many ways. But what I found fascinating about those, aside from the things we talked about, was that sense of mystery Because every now and then, I mean, a lot of those movies were not that good, but every now and then there would be this one that by the time you got to the end, there would be this surprise. And to me, that was like the toy at the bottom of the cereal box. It was like, oh, cool, I didn't expect that. I didn't think that's what was going on. I didn't think that's who was going to be the killer. I didn't Mm -hmm. think, whatever it was. And that sense of watching a mystery unfold was always intriguing to me. And I think that's a lot of what I think excites me, A, about the genre. I love good when a horror is, has that mysterious element. But I think all good films should, on some level, you shouldn't know what's happening next. Right. So it's a little bit of that. And then I, my dad had a camera, and I was like, yeah, let's just make movies. And so that's it just sort of was something I started doing at a very young age. Have you revisited any of the movies that you made as a kid? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I'm sure they're horrifying.
0: <laughs> There's always something interesting, though, about going back and kind of seeing that seed of of the of like what is to come, even if it's not. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: totally, totally. When I look well when I look back when I think about the kinds of movies that I like. A lot of them had their seeds in movies either that I saw as a very young kid or movies I was trying to do, because some of the films I tried to do were horror films. They were right. terrible. But, um, you know, so I already knew I liked that genre. So horror was something that you gravitated to right away. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Because, you know, sometimes when you talk to actors, there's there are the actors who start, and horror is something they're all about, and then you'll
1: talk to some actors and say, well, horror chose me. Oh, ah, uh, well... Mm. as a genre <laughs> as a as a uh, part as a viewer right I was always interested in horror as a interestingly I when I started writing I started writing a lot of horror but I didn't act a lot of horror because I was always the dorky guy so I was always more often cast as in comedic roles and things like that um, horror, kind of just happened. Uh, I sort of discovered that, that my unusual uh, manner and features sort of tended to work for that. And people sort of started to discover that. And I guess we discovered it together. Different directors were like, oh my gosh, you're perfect for this. Oh, okay.
0: Now, you're originally from Southern California, right? Yeah, I'm a native a rarity as people like (laughs) as people like to point out here in LA like I was I have friends who are from here that they're like "Uh, if someone points out that you know that's rare but (laughs) yeah Um, so you're you're making this content for yourself and as you're writing you're you're doing horror but you move into acting you're doing theater as you said and getting comedic roles do you think that it was because of the work that you were creating as a writer that you started veering towards the genre, or was it sort of like a happy accident that you started getting cast in horror meanwhile you were writing these things?
1: I think it was actually uh, almost a combination in the sense that I think think my horror journey as a participant that is director, writer, whatever, really pretty much started... With uh, Deadly Revisions, because I had become friends with Bill Obers Jr. and uh, Cindy Merrill, who were in the film, and we were trying actually to come up with a project. And I wrote this short uh, piece, and we were trying to figure out how to do it, blah blah blah, and we just couldn't figure it out. And finally, I I pulled out Deadly Revisions, which had a different name at the time, and I gave it to Bill, and I said, "Bill, this is you could totally kill this." No pun intended. <laughs> what do you think he read? it? he went, this is great. I love it. And uh, at the same time, I had met Roxy Shee, who ended up being the producer. And she read it, and she said, what? Bill wants to do it? Oh, my gosh. So she was like uh, Judy Garland in, like, those Mickey Rooney movies. Let's do it! <laughs> and so suddenly we were doing it. And, uh, and so I think that was really my first big horror film that I can think of, other than being uh, an extra in some... I was in, oh gosh, what the hell was that called? Uh Zombie Strippers. <laughs> oh. Well,
0: if you're gonna combine two things.
1: Uh, exactly. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, uh So that was that was probably my first, but again, that's kind of a comedy. But anyway, but so it really did the revisions is sort of what cemented uh that image in other people's minds of right. oh, Gregory Blair, he does horror. Because after that, suddenly, I started getting a lot of stuff.
0: Isn't it funny how the the, the needle will tick in that direction once once the,
1: the audience sees that? Totally. Because, yeah, now all I play, well, not all I play, but a lot of what I play is horrible evil. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: let's backtrack just a little bit. You uh, were talking about you were involved in theater. Uh, you were making movies as a kid. uh but at what point, like, did you always know that you were going to professionally try to act? Was that like a right
1: from school into Absolutely. the world of professional acting? I knew I was going to act from day one. That was never a question.
0: And so you, you did clearly because all of a sudden, you, I've been look. I was looking at your resume, and you've got so many credits. Uh, but like you said, it it was sort of a break before you returned to the the behind-the-camera stuff. Yes. And obviously making movies in the backyard or in the neighborhood with your friends using your dad's camera is a whole different process than choosing to be a filmmaker. So you're working as an actor. What was the impetus for you to say, okay, the time is now that I want to write something or direct something and and be also involved behind the camera – or was it because you had made movies when you were younger that was always in the back of your brain?
1: You know, I would say it's a little bit of both again because I think it was always in the back of my brain, but I think I had this sense of it's too hard. Right. I haven't gone to school for that. Uh, who do I think I am? This is, that's, that's something I can't do, which is a terrible thing to say to yourself, but we do, so I'm right. admitting my flaw there. Uh, and so it really was with Deadly Revisions when I, I thought, I originally thought we were going to make this small film and I wasn't even sure that I was going to direct it for sure. I was just writing it at the time Right. when Deadly Revisions happened and then I gave it to Bill and he said, yes, I gave it to Rox, and she said, yes. And she said, and you're going to direct it. And I went, uh, and that's how that happened. Were you, I said, yes. Were you terrified? Uh, I, I was not terrified, but I was, I would say I was anxious. Sure. Uh, because I knew, the reason I wasn't terrified is because I knew what my plan was going to be. I was going to sort of FDR it. Right. And In other words, I was going to surround myself with people who knew every job that there is on set. And so this person would know what they were doing, they would know what they were, and having all of those people know what they were doing, I would say, this is what I want, <laughs> and then they would make it happen, kind of a thing. So... Which was a learning experience for me because it doesn't exactly work that way, but it helps.
0: No, it doesn't. But I do think that one of the the great things that a director can do is know what they want and surround themselves with people who can make it happen. Yes. Uh, One of my favorite stories uh, of John Carpenter is that uh, someone asked him, what's the key to being a director? And he said, just always have an answer. If someone asks you a question, you can't pause. You can't say, I don't know. You either say yes or no. And as the director, you reserve your right later to change your mind. Like, I know (laughs) I I said no right here, but I was thinking about it, and I decided I want to do this. And that, I thought, is really great advice because we've all been on sets where people just kind of don't commit. And it leads
1: to chaos. Absolutely, because the director is the... He's the helmsman of the ship. He has to be steering it. And if he doesn't know where he's going, that's that makes everyone uncomfortable. Absolutely. But one thing I do think is also
0: true is that uh, I, I conceptualized this idea not long ago because I was on set where I was faced with a problem that I had never seen before. And I realized every movie... Even though you gain experience, of course, but every movie in its way is like the first movie because it presents challenges that you, just when you think you've seen it all, there's like a whole new thing that right. you're like, okay, I guess we got to figure this out.
1: Yes, always.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with Deadly Revisions, you're off and all of a sudden the the, the track into the world of horror is just set. Right. And so you noticed, I'm sure, uh, a shift in in your career based on that. And did you then, like, want to keep making horror from that?
1: Yes. Well, because it's fun. It's a a super fun genre. Um, And because I am often cast as uh, the bad guy... I get to unleash all sorts of things that I don't normally unleash into the world. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's uh, freeing, is what it is, um, and and people respond to it. So that now I get people who are writing roles for me in their scripts and things like that. So that's I feel very lucky that that's happening.
0: Um. Well, and as you said earlier, uh, you mentioned one of the draws of horror is that it is a genre that kind of appeals to the oddballs and the outsiders and is sure. a genre of otherness. And from that, there is sort of a community that gathers. And you, you right. mentioned the term horror family. And uh, you find yourself part of that once once you enter this world. Totally. Uh, and and there's something exciting about it, I think, to then know that, like, you can come up with a crazy idea and take it to other people and make it happen because they, too, want to see the off-the-wall, the odd, and the
1: strange made manifest. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, there's suddenly... It's it, it, odd. There's no fear. Right. Because no one is going to say, that's too weird or that's too creepy or that's too anything because... Nothing is. It's almost a very fearless genre of filmmakers in a way. So
0: even though you just sort of answered this question, do you believe there is... uh, How far is too far? Is there a too far?
1: Is there a too far? Um, Well, I would say yes, yes. There is a too far. There's probably a too far in anything. Um, I would say actually killing people is too sure, far. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> um, for, for, for an obvious answer there, right, right. that would be problematic for me. Actually, uh, I know there's a lot of sort of... Uh, I hate to, I'm, uh, this is the wrong word, but I'm going to say cinema verite because I know that has a specific meaning, mm-hmm. but where like people are, there are films where people are really having sex or we're really terrorized this actress. And right. I, to me, that's a little too far. It's like either we're actors or we're not. And if we're not acting, then what are we doing?
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. We've never really talked about this on the show before. This, this sort of... Boundary pushing cinema, whether it be like from the actor's perspective, method acting, or as you said, the idea of filmmakers trying to make you confront reality by actually putting reality in your face, right? That to me, in a way, is horror, but of a different kind because I don't know that that's what we as artists sign up for, and I don't know that's what audiences are asking for.
1: Well, no, it's like I mean, and. it's I mean, In a way, those are sort of like those prank shows where they're, they're terrorizing people, you right. know? And I always think, I mean, I, I don't know if any of those shows are actually real or if they're as fake as every other reality show is. Right. But if it's real, you could be giving people heart attacks. Right. I just don't think that that's a good thing. When you go to a horror movie, you have chosen to enter that. You know there will probably be a jump scare. Right. Do you know what I mean? That's your choice to go into that realm. But if it's real, then that's problematic for me.
0: For sure. And I even even when the illusion sometimes borders a little too real, I think that sometimes that's troublesome as well. Like, oh, sure. How much authenticity do we need in the fantastic? Uh, and I know it's a tenant of theater, right? If you have a scene of violence, you have you don't want it to look too real because you don't want to unsettle your audience.
1: Well, right. I get. Well, I guess that's a sort of an artistic question in a way, um, because what's unsettled, what unsettles me, might not unsettle you. True. So I don't. I don't. I'm not sure how to draw the line on that. Uh, that's a tough one. But certainly, if you are breaking the law, that's a problem. Right. So yeah, that's tough because there are a lot of films I really like that are way out there and do some really. Uh, disturbing strange things um and uh i i don't know i think
0: uh oh i love disturbing and and strange i I, I just uh there's always uh, a joy in taking the devil's advocate of this discussion because i think that especially existing in the genre as we do uh whether we want to admit it or not there is a desensitization of what oh uh, yeah i'm sure that you and i can sit and watch things that like you know someone in Omaha, who has never really engaged with horror films, would think is like the most outrageous thing. Absolutely, and I love seeing that envelope pushed. In some ways, I I find it
1: exciting. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I think I think there is. That's why it's an interesting subject because pushing the envelope is uh, something I think you need to do because if you don't go into something uncharted, you're not going to learn something. Right. Um there's a there's risk involved in that though and the risk is you might do something that is something you wish you hadn't done right whatever so bringing it kind of back to the original
0: question and and the uh top of the discussion is maybe one of the the goals of horror to just test the limits of where we are as people
1: and as a society Ooh, i love that idea that's an interesting theory um and I would argue that some filmmakers in the genre are doing that. I think, um, oh, Cronenberg would be a good example of that. He combines different slices of the genre and, and, and says strange sort of psychologically disturbing things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that that's I, – I don't think that's a goal uh, that everyone has to meet. Sure. I think I think people get into horror and appreciate horror for lots of different reasons, uh, but that's a valid one.
0: No, for sure. And I I, I like the uh, mention of Cronenberg because especially when you look at the kind of peak years he was doing genre films, uh, he's a master, no question. But I don't know that he's a f- Fun filmmaker. Like, no one would say that David Cronenberg's like a knee slapping kind of good time.
1: Oh, no, because all of his films are very much about dark elements of our right. psyche and they're very disturbing but that's what makes it
0: delicious like in i and I, that's what i think what you're saying is is you're right not everybody does that but the people who do really do push it yeah and i think sometimes those are the ones that resonate when you think about things like rabid or shivers uh and uh you know the brood the brood is a big
1: one for yeah, me yeah is uh
0: and then in comparison to contemporary films of the era like american werewolf in london you know they're very different. Very different, <laughs> yeah.
1: sure, yeah. But that's also a classic. Yeah, um, doing something completely different again. That was, I think, the first that I remember—the first really gory, bloody horror comedy that I had seen. I know it wasn't the first one that was made, but that's right. the first one I remember seeing. And that roller coaster of being terrified and laughing was so bizarre to me. It's it, it's a huge. Yeah, that really sparked something because that, I think it was a little bit later after that that I saw uh, Evil Dead Part Two: Dead by Dawn, which is exactly that same kind of roller coaster, right? right? I think those are the films that inspired Garden Party Massacre because that's a total which
0: I wanted to ask about because one, I think it definitely would
1: fit in uh, with
0: what viewers, listeners of this show are interested in. Uh, And I I really think that um, there is a a combination of comedy and horror that happens. And I wanted to ask you before we got into Garden Party Massacre as a whole uh, topic, um, because you did kind of come from a world of comedic acting and you are also involved in horror. And I know with things like Garden Party Massacre, you, you bridge the worlds. Is that something that you like to do? You like to to
1: like look at the absurd and show how it can be scary but also funny? Well, I know I respond to those kinds of movies a lot. We just recently saw uh, Happy Death Day 2. And I love that. I eat that up. Mm-hmm. I think it's because horror is uh if you if you buy into the movie, which is what you're supposed to do, Right. it's this scary thing that you experience. But if you pull yourself out of it sort of from an objective standpoint, and by now we've seen a million things talking about, the tropes that are ridiculous. Oh, I heard scary sounds in the basement where the lights don't work. I think I'll go down and investigate. Right. Okay, what idiot does that? No one. So it's something that's amusing, Immediately.
0: But do you ever find, because you, you bring that up, um, we know these tropes. We live right. in these tropes. But then something will happen in my life where there's like a noise in the other room. And I'm like, oh, I should go see what that is. And I'm like, I know better. Like, of anybody, <laughs> right. I know better. So I think the tropes still exist because there's something tangible about them that, like, or real. Um, I'm always the first person to go investigate a noise. I So I would not make it.
1: <laughs> oh wow. Yeah. Okay. You're the first person to yeah. die in a horror film. Yeah. I'm always
0: I well, I mean, also though I think because of my leanings towards horror, I would either be the first person to die or I'd be the person everyone thought did it, and I would be the second to like the second to last death. Right. Because I would be the suspect up until and I'd be like, I've been telling you guys all along. <laughs> uh no, I love that because a couple times during the course of the conversation we've talked about how it's a thin line sometimes between horror and comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think to then as a creator or storyteller take that notion on and say yes there is and bring them together that's uh that's an awareness of of two different aspects of how we as people deal with things and i think mm. that's really interesting
1: and it's not easy comedy's not easy comedy in general is not easy and and horror comedy is not easy but when it's done well right God, it's fun.
0: <laughs> so tell me about Garden Party Massacre. Uh, why Why that story?
1: What brought that out to the world? Uh, that happened partly because when I was trying to think uh, about actually filming another movie, I thought, what do I want to film next? And Deadly Revisions was such a study in... Uh, Shadow and darkness. It's a this dark, brooding, uh, slow-burn psychological thriller. So there's lots of... There's a lot of dark, there's a lot of shadows, a lot of angles, a lot of... Uh, that kind of imagery and that kind of thing. And I wanted... I said to myself, I want to do something totally different. What would be the total opposite of that? So Garden Party Massacre is... Uh, even though there's a horror, the horror element there, it's basically a comedy. It all takes place entirely in the day. It's light, it's bright, it's fast-faced. It's, it's basically like an antithesis bookend of Deadly Revisions. Right. Um, so that's how it came to me. I got the title. It just popped into my head one day, and I thought, that's kind of hilarious <laughs> because, are you... you know, <laughs> garden parties are so refined and massacres are anything but. Well, I was going to ask, are you a garden party enthusiast? I've never been to one. So I'm afraid. <laughs> other than I, the one you made in your other film. Other than the yeah. one I made. Right. <laughs> so, anyway, so the, the title just made me laugh. And then I just started writing it. And I came up with these characters and um, the whole scenario. And I just thought it was hilarious. And I was about two thirds done. And uh, so then I had some. Actor friends come and read it uh to see if, you know, is it is it just me? Am I the only one who thinks this is funny or does ever and they all said it was hilarious. And I said, So what should I do next? I said, Here are my ideas. I was gonna either do this or this or this, and we sort of talked about them, and that's how I ended up deciding on how to finish the script. I finished the script. I now I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm doing this. And um so I just started casting it, and then boom, we were making it. Uh and I love that you you did a horror piece
0: set in daylight because there is a kind of a proud subgenre of horror that are daylight horror films. Sure. And I, I, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, of course, like when you think of the titles, right, they, they share, you know, a commonality uh, is a daylight horror film. Totally. totally. And uh, so I just I love that there's there's a spiritual kinship.
1: Ah, I love that. I would never have i mean <laughs> gosh, I certainly that wasn't in the back of my head when I was making this film, but I love it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess in some ways too, at a garden party, you always enjoy fine food and what <laughs> what was the plot of Texas chainsaw, if not good barbecue that's true <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I wanted to ask because sometimes when when you you do movies of this nature uh the world at large likes to prescribe uh, the label of camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you view garden party massacre as something that fits within the camp genre?
1: I'm going to leave that up to the viewer. I think, um, do I think it's campy? Uh, uh, probably. <laughs> I, right. I like camp. Uh, somebody described it as, imagine the cast of Big Bang Theory trapped in a horror film, <laughs> which I thought was interesting because it is sort of this, it is very, uh, that comedic bang, 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 punchline, set up, punchline, boom. And that's how a lot of sitcom is. So it is a lot of like that. It is like Friends meets the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a right. way. yeah um, there is a lot of that, so uh, sure, there probably is a lot of camp element because I am picking fun at horror tropes, but also at other sort of social things. There's stuff about cell phones and and other things, and so yeah, there's a little camp, a little satire. It's it's a lot of stuff. Now is camp
0: something that you you said you like? Camp. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that camp does have a uh, kinship with with the world of genre because it frequently pokes uh, holes in in the way we perceive things.
1: Yes, that's interesting. I never thought about camp as a genre of its own. I guess because it, you can have camp in a variety of kinds of films. Right. I mean, if you look at... Um, what's that classic? Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. That's horror and drama and camp. Right. So... Um, it's interesting though right because
0: camp isn't frequently as you just pointed out referred to as a genre of its own right but there are films that when we see them we call them camp we, classics we call them of. camp classics yep yep and i i think too there was a long standing notion that camp was always unintentional
1: but I don't think that's true. Oh, I don't think that's true either. I
0: mean, I think John Waters is a master of camp and an intentionally oh, so. Oh, totally.
1: Totally. Yeah. No, I think camp can be accidental. Absolutely. Sure. Um but I think the best camp probably is totally intentional. Because it it's it's a it's camp is a knowing wink. Right. It's hard to have a knowing wink if you don't know you're doing it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and so that's why I think the connection to horror is fascinating because, as we talked about earlier, horror can be social commentary, mm-hmm. and that's a knowing link. Sure. So they're kind of like odd cousins when you think about it. They're the kind of the heightened reality on two sides of the fence. Uh, I don't know. I'm fascinated by this. I like, like I didn't plan on going this territory, no, but no, like, it's
1: totally cool because I kind of like that idea because it is the, there is that similarity in that horror is always going off sort of to a heightened reality. You know, there's always too much screaming or too much blood or too much. Too, it's, it's always this pushing to a higher level. So there is a similarity there. One is for eliciting fear and the other is for eliciting laughter, but same difference, different emotion. And I like the idea of, of
0: how you said both of them push things, pushing the envelope, pushing the the borders of what we view as as reality, taking reality that up that notch. Uh, And you were talking about how the difference between Deadly Revisions and Garden Party Massacre was a complete tonal flip. The idea of you did sort of this contemplative dark piece. So you Mm -hmm. wanted to do something Bright and like over the top in its way and uh fun and and funny. Uh and those are boundary pushing yourself. So where do you as an artist see
1: like what would the next what what is where do you push yourself next? That's a terrific question for which I have absolutely no answer. I don't <laughs> know what I would do next. Um I have I, the projects I have that are sort of hanging in the wings are all uh, acting projects, although some of them I have been responsible for the writing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing on the directing side right now because partly I think because of the question you just asked is I don't really know what I want to do next right So it would have to be something that really, speaks to me it, it, it'll it come to me I think the project I think it'll come to me because I don't know what I would do next
0: so when when you're kind of looking at the different aspects of your career obviously as an actor usually people will come to you and ask you to be in their work but when it comes time to choosing something that you would direct is it always something that you write or do you
1: historically yes yeah, yeah. um I have had people ask me if I want to direct other projects. And usually the answer is no, because it's not a project that I want to direct. It's, right. You know what I mean? Like I said, it has to be something. Directing is so it takes so much out of you. There's there are so many sides to it, it's so involving. It 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 it's your world. And so you have to really love whatever it is you're gonna say yes to right. when it comes to directing, I think. Um so yeah, that's that that the thing I am asked more to either write or act than I am to direct, which is fine with me because I don't like to turn people away, and right. I don't like to say no. Uh, So you as a
0: writer can write things and give them to other directors,
1: but you are more
0: precious about the things that you direct. You want that to be something that you yourself create usually.
1: Oh, no. I'm happy to direct somebody else's work, but it's going to have to be so amazing. That you're willing to That I'm willing to devote, you know, the next two years of my life to (laughs) it. Uh, And, you know, there are scripts out there that are that, I'm sure, but they haven't come to me yet. So, Well, you never know. You never know. Now it's in the ether. Like I said, I think it'll. When it happens, I'll know. I'll go. This is it. This is what I'm doing. No, I was just curious because I liked the
0: idea that you uh, presented this this notion of the duality between the two films. And as this conversation has sort of taken on the theme of like the pushing the envelope and pushing the boundaries, I like that. In your own answer, you talked about how you sort of pushed yourself to try, I did this. So now I need to do the complete polar opposite because that's what I want to do artistically. So I was just curious. And maybe Uh. that thing has just yet to reveal itself. Totally. It may be a drama. Maybe. Now you've made people... Laugh, you've made them scared. Now you have to go make them cry. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so I had mentioned at the top of the show that um, you have quite a resume of acting roles. Uh, I was looking on IMDb alone, it's over
1: 60 plus performances, and there's probably more. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, because IMDb only lists only list some film and television credits they don't list any theater or anything else like that right and it's frequently not up to date which i don't know that the people in the
0: world at large always know um but you know some of the things that i mentioned in the intro were more recently discussed in the press or like i know i've I've seen you out in the world promoting but with that many credits to your name Are there roles of yours that uh, you wish had gotten more attention than they did? Or do you have any particular favorite uh, performances you would like to point people towards?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. No one's asked me that before. I like that. I was certainly Weird Wendell in Love That Girl. That was, uh, I got that role. It was an interesting way I got the role. I was called in for a completely different role. Mm-hmm. the nerdy writer, ha ha, <laughs> <laughs> typecasting. Uh, and I did that. And she said, that was really good. Can I give you another role? I said, sure. She gave it to me. I went outside and read it. And I went, oh, my gosh, this is so much more fun. And I went in the room and did that. And she was like, yeah, thank you. And so that's how I ended up getting that role. And uh, and it was just uh, supposed to be a one-off Um but they rewrote me in for a couple more episodes, so I was kind of hoping maybe he would become a, a recurring character. More, of, he was a recurring character, but a more of a recurring character. But I think it went off the air actually, so it wouldn't have lasted anyway. But that was a really crazy, weird, fun character. Um, and you know, now that it's off the air, I don't know who can see it. I don't. I don't even know if it's on on anywhere, YouTube or right. anything like that. Um, I really liked my role in Escape the Night. That was really fun. I wanted to
0: ask about Escape the Night because uh, when I first moved to LA, I actually had been working in the digital space, and uh, I had done a couple small events with Joey Graceffa. Oh, okay. and uh, to see from you know the YouTube beginnings and, and watch him create this show—that's it's somewhat reality competition
1: esque, right? Or is it a scripted? It is a it's a partially scripted. Because it's a, it's kind of like a whodunit murder mystery slash reality show game, right? Because every episode, one of the the YouTubers is gonna die, basically, right. and so the YouTubers. Have no idea what's going to happen to them, but they have to stay in character, right? They stay in their character. See, this is all fascinating. To yeah, me. yeah, it's yeah. a totally cool concept. So they all are either at—I think they were all at a 1920s gathering at our in our episode, episode two. Right? I mean, series two, and um, in our uh, episode, there was the the main villain. I think the main villain was the the gingerbread woman. Who had abducted these kids? So it was the the YouTubers had to find the kids, and when they eventually get to the gingerbread woman's uh, bakehouse, if you will, I play Samson, who is her slave, who is doing all the baking. And I have this gem that they have to get. And so it's, they need to get that. And then two of them, she catches them. And then two of them have to come back and play this game. And whoever wins gets to go free and the other one dies, blah, blah, blah. So the YouTubers never knew what was going to happen. So it was a lot of fun. We, as the characters they interfaced with, We had lines, but we also had earpieces so that if, you know, the YouTubers were totally off the rails, we could, the director could tell us tell them this or whatever oh that's interesting because I wondered
0: I had known about the show and uh it's it's crazy like it has a crazy following Super because crazy right now uh, in Los Angeles uh, for those of you who aren't here in Southern California on Sunset Boulevard which is peak advertising real estate there are giant
1: billboards for the new season they have them every they're on Sunset Boulevard every season yeah and
0: it's wild but like I always was fascinated by this idea because I know that Joey is very interested in the world of genre and and horror and played with it in this in the way that only could maybe really exist in the YouTube space yeah, because all
1: of, of the episodes are, have a thriller/horror element always and the
0: idea that they're playing characters but it's also like a game for them that's got to be
1: kind of an exciting challenge as an actor because you kind of have to think on your feet as well, I'm sure. Totally, because you never know what's going to come out of their mouths or what they're going to ask you. So it's very – even though you have this scripted dialogue, things you will need to eventually get out and say so that they hear them because they need them because they're either clues or whatever it is. Right. Um, it's It's very much improv. Because you have to they'll they'll what they ask you is just nobody knows what they're gonna ask you and you have to come up with an answer.
0: It's exciting and then like from a director's standpoint it feels like almost it would be like hurting cats too. Like I'm really interested in it. That's yeah, absolutely.
1: The director was amazing because that's exactly what i imagined it was and right. they would we would come in before the youtubers would get there and they would basically so where are we going to put the cameras there? we have to figure out where they're going to be because okay the youtubers are going to be standing here and they'd have stand-ins for where those bodies would be and it would all have to be orchestrated in such a way and even so sometimes the youtubers were would end up not where they're supposed to be and so i mean it was a a, a feat of sheer magic that director my hands are up in the air to him. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I think that's very, uh, was that a long shoot day? Uh, I, I don't remember it being longer than anything else. I mean, you know, <laughs> every shoot fair. day is a long <laughs> shoot day. <laughs> um, well, I took
0: you on a very, very like long departure into the discussion of Escape the Night. Uh, but was were there any
1: other roles that were standouts for you? I'm very excited about my role in Fang that is just now hitting the festival circuit. That's the new, well, it's no longer the newest Adam Steigert film. um, But I play this creepy character, creepy caretaker named Harold. And uh, I think he's going to be a real, people really seem to be responding to him, you know, kind of like, I wonder if he's going to be my Freddy, (laughs) you know, because people really are responding to him. So I'm excited about that. And uh We'll see what happens with that.
0: Okay, so with with that in mind, these different challenges, uh, and we're t- we just talked about kind of an array of different kinds of things, a movie, a YouTube series, and a TV series. Uh, and I also mentioned the fact that you have a long list of credits where you've played different parts. Is there a kind of character that you haven't played yet that you want to play or that you've always wanted to play?
1: That's a yummy question, too. Uh, We do our best here at Dead for Phil. I mean, there are characters uh, that I know that exist in, like, uh, plays that I know I want to play. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean a character type? Why not both?
0: Like if you're like if you have always wanted to be George and who's afraid of Virginia Wolf? I am not here to oh, stop Oh hell you. yes, <laughs> <laughs> who doesn't? Right. <laughs> but also, are there are there types that you are just like? I have never been asked to play this kind of role, and I'm dying to do that.
1: Hmm. You know, I'm so open to anything. I don't know that I that there is a particular type that I am uh, pining for. So I think I don't have an answer for that side of the question. I, I, I anything can be fascinating and interesting, right. Uh, it's pretty much de- totally dependent on the writing and then what you bring to it. And or what the director allows you to bring to it. I mean, it's a combination of the three of you coming up with something. So, any character can be exciting and interesting. I think. Uh, I haven't. Yeah, no, I'll wait and see what 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 comes in that in that department.
0: Well, I think it's always good then to be open. You never know. I mean, sometimes I talk to people and they say I'm always cast as. You know, oh, and I'd rather be, play. Be play. And
1: I would, would love to try this. So I just didn't know because... Interesting. No, I think... Because when I started out acting... When I st- started trying to decide I wanted to be in film, I had no idea what my type was. I, I wanted to play what I wanted to play. Right. Which was the this sort of uh, winsome... Uh, Wave character because I was still small and all of that and, and young and boyish and all that, but I didn't have the right look for that, mm-hmm. and I never got cast as it, and uh, and I just kept going round and round trying to figure out what what the heck nobody wants to cast me as anything. I couldn't figure <laughs> it out, and then suddenly when it became clear, oh, I'm the funny neighbor. I'm the funny wingman, I'm the psycho killer, whatever. Once I started realizing what people saw me as, it became so much easier because I, d- I knew what to audition for.
0: I do love that the psycho killer and the funny wingman can exist
1: in tandem in the
0: world of the casting.
1: <laughs> of course. Well, look at, uh, I mean, Scream is kind of like that. Those guys are kind of each other's wingmen, Yeah. if you think about it. I always thought they liked each other a little too much, but that's just maybe the nature of this show. Um, Oh, but isn't that, wasn't that uh, made explicit?
0: No, I mean, I don't think that it was made. In the movie? Not in the original Scream. I mean, I think that we can project the idea that maybe Billy and Stu had some sort of. Uh,
1: I sort of thought they absolutely had. It always felt very homoerotic to me. Maybe I misread that, or maybe I misheard it. I'm going to have to watch that again. I sort of thought that was what they were intimating pretty. Explicitly. But,
0: well, you know. I, you know, I think that there there's a read of it for sure. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's I'm sure you know as well. Scream fans are very passionate. So the people who disagree with me will probably be in the Twitter of the show's account.
1: But, <laughs> we're gonna hear they're gonna yeah, be yeah, you yeah, idiots. Letting know, like, how <laughs> dare you? I'm like, Well, they were killers, so you know But that's a great thing is the how people are so passionate yep. about the genre and or the things that they like in the genre. I mean, I love that. That uh that's exciting to me, but I will say, while we're on that sort of topic, is one thing I, I would love to a bullet point to put out there into the world, is for people to uh, become more aware of the difference between liking something and uh, and its worth. Right. In other words, people are very quick to say oh, I like that movie, it's good, or I did. I hated that movie, it's bad. Right. And those two things don't follow each other. You can hate a movie, and it could still be good, and you could like a movie, and it could still be not good. The movie is what it is, and your opinion and likes or dislikes have nothing to do with the quality of the movie. And people have a hard time, I think, separating that, because when you go to see a movie... It's so much about you, your history, your feelings, your psychology, what happened to you that day, your mood, who are you with, the audience. All of those things are part of that experience. And sometimes that can totally change how you see a movie. It's true. And I think that
0: sometimes you go and see a movie and you're not in the right frame of mind. I've gone to see films and not cared for them, only to see them later on television and realize, oh, I really enjoy this movie. Maybe I just, maybe I was the problem the day I saw the film. I've
1: had that happen enough times to realize that as well. And, but I do think
0: especially with internet culture. You know, I'd said, I said, yes, I, I, I joked about how Scream fans were going to come and yell at us because I, <laughs> I I maybe misread Billy and Stu's relationship or didn't misread it, depending on who you are. Oh, yeah. But uh, I think we've forgotten that art is subjective. Totally. And it's because we, now it's the blessing and the curse of the internet, I always say, is that like everybody can voice their opinion and everybody can voice their opinion. And so it, it lends this idea that Everybody wants to be the most important in the conversation. Ah. And, and so we have this, this, there are whole websites devoted to, well, I just went to the movies and now I'm going to type out my review and my four star, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And there are, I, I've had friends ask me, well, why haven't you joined this site so you can log the movies you're watching? And I was like, well, I'm glad that you're doing it. And I think that's exciting for you, but... It comes down to, I don't really care what other people think ab- about the movies I see. Like, I either sure. like it or I don't. Exactly. And, like, whether you, like, we could sit and talk about the same movie and you could say, I don't like that and I loved it. And I'd be like, cool. <laughs> it's
1: not oh, going yeah. to make me not like it. You know? I had a great conversation with a, a fellow filmmaker uh, a couple of months ago, I guess, about a certain film that was out in the zeitgeist. Uh, and he loved it and I didn't. And we talked about the different elements about what we liked and didn't like. And it was a great civil conversation. I mean, at the end of the day, he walked away still liking it and I walked away still not liking it. And that's great. And I think especially like in in a world where
0: such negativity is put out every day, just celebrate the things that you do like.
1: Yes. That would be my other bullet point. Thank you for putting it out there. (laughs) You don't like something, don't talk about it. Right. Who cares? Okay, you didn't like it. So what? Which just a movie. Which leads to a question I do like
0: to ask every guest uh, as we start winding up the show, Um, but this is a great time to ask it. What have you seen recently that you love or that's inspiring you or that you're enjoying?
1: Uh, Let's see. Well, I've I've always been enjoying the Doctor Whos, the new Whos. They're, I think they're fabulous, brilliant, I scary and funny and campy and all sorts of stuff. It's sort of the perfect mishmash of all the
0: things it we've been really talking about. It really is. I
1: don't know that I knew that you were a Doctor Who fan. Oh, I'm a big Who. You haven't seen my... Oh, I have this... Uh, I had it as my... Uh, what do you call your... My cover page on Facebook. I have this shot of me and the TARDIS. Oh, I'll have to it's look. It's totally... Who Nerdville? <laughs> are, are are you a long time fan? I used to watch it when I was a little kid. Yeah, we're actually started rewatching the old ones in between watching the new ones. I love classic era. Who? Do you have a favorite Doctor? Uh, that's really hard, as because f- it's like it's like uh, you know when people ask me what's your favorite horror film. Uh, it changes, yeah. yeah. It changes, and/or I feel uh, in some ways it's like even though in Doctor Who's world it is actually comparing apples with apples, they're all different in their own way and and magical and interesting in their own way. I agree with that. I uh, I
0: did uh, a guest spot on a sci-fi podcast where they asked me the same question, and I kind of skirted the answer. <laughs> but but uh, I do always like to ask because it is, it does come up when when the show's discussed. Um, but one of the things I love about the consistency of the writing, and a credit to all of the showrunners who've who've uh, run Doctor Who over the fifty five years that it's been yeah. on, is that they find people who are dynamically different yet embody the same spirit. Yeah. So there's never been someone to me that was a bad doctor. I I, I like each of them for different reasons, and right. I think each of their eras are different. Sylvester McCoy is not. Tom Baker is not David Tennant, but they're all the Doctor, and yeah. I love that. Uh, Tom Baker was my first Doctor, but I don't know, with the oh, lens of right. time, if that would make him my favorite. He's just the one that I saw first, right? Because so, like yeah.
1: the we're as I said, we started rewatching from the beginning, and I did not. I have not. We have yet to come to a Doctor that I remember yet, right? So I'm discovering new Doctors as we go. And uh, some of those early episodes are, there's a
0: lot of moral quandaries.
1: Always. You yeah. know, it was, it was, I loved that. The, th- television shows that were sort of sci fi ish back then, often, like Twilight Zone, there was a lot of moral questions, things that they were not afraid to address about society, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the great things about good writing is when you. It's not just about everything. Is not just face value. There's other stuff going on, right? Um, and good horror does that too. Any genre can do it, I think. Well, and I, uh, you know, appreciate any
0: discussion that ends with the equation of Doctor Who and the Twilight Zone <laughs> sharing some of the same social commentary space. <laughs> We're uh, not nerds and, at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, uh, what else? What beyond uh, the the good Doctor is is
1: on the the watch list Uh, other things that i really like Uh, well we're watching uh ash versus the evil dead because we're way behind on everything i don't know how that happened but it is we're way behind well i
0: think that when you're making movies you don't often have time to watch movies
1: so uh, oh that's probably partly it and we also are we're everybody subscribes to different things we're subscribing to netflix and a lot of those things don't show up until after they've shown up on HBO or Hulu or wherever, right? Right. They eventually get there, so we're behind the, behind the the run on that. Um, what else are we watching that I really like? Uh, well, we're still watching Grimm. I know that's over, but I like that show a lot. That's another great example of what didn't exist so much before, but exists now a lot, which is exciting to me. Is horror television shows, right? with American Horror Story and Grimm. And I mean, there's just tons of them now. That was not a very popular genre at the time for television. I mean, beforehand. So I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, there's been a
0: whole new <clears> benchmark <throat> uh, of, of, of horror TV. And I'm sure we could trace it back to things like Buffy and the X-Files, of kind course. of like pivoting the conversation. But you're right. Before uh, kind of the mid 90s, we didn't it was few and far between. There would be like a vampire series from Canada that would last a couple seasons and it right. would like flit away. Or uh, Now it's sort of um, an embarrassment of riches for horror.
1: I know. I kind of like it.
0: <laughs> we were due. <laughs> I know. And uh, give me more. Give me it all. I want a buffet of, of of ooky, spooky things. Uh, so we hinted at this a little earlier about some uh, things when you mentioned Fang, but what else is coming up for you? I know I see on your social media all the time you're always up to new projects, you're announcing new things, and I know you've got
1: a few new projects uh, coming down the pike. So what's uh, what's new? What's next? So uh, so Fang is in uh, just, just, just starting the festival circuit, so once it finishes that, then it'll be out for people to see. Um, that is a werewolf movie. But it's more than a werewolf movie. So that's I think that's what's fun about it. It's a little bit like a fun house in a way because you never quite know what's going to happen. Um that's by Adam Steiger, who also I just got back from New York filming um, The Horrific Evil Monsters, which has... That's another film that's a whole hybrid of things because it is all of these... There's a serial killer, a zombie, a werewolf... Uh, is an action hero. Actually, I think he's an actor who's pretending to be an action hero. <laughs> There's an alien. They're all being recruited into this group to help, because only supernatural beings basically are going to be able to stop the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh, that's so interesting. That's this. That's what's going on in that story. And I play uh, Famine, so I'm one of the horsemen. Um, so that just finished uh, filming, so it's going in a post right now. So... That's even further along in the uh, timeline, uh, and then other projects I have that I said that I'm probably going to be um, that I'll be acting in. One is supposed to be actually this fall, uh, and that's a pilot called Winter Haven, which is a kind of, I guess, a slasher TV show. It's a horror TV show, I'd rather say, because it's a it's sort of detective. Two Okay. So it's a little bit of a mix of genres there. And then there's a film that, uh, there are a couple of films I wrote for Chase Dudley, who did Beast of the Field, which is also, I think, uh, just finished post production. And so it'll hit the film festival circuit and then be out. That's sort of a survival drama slash horror film. Um, Anyway, he's got two more that I helped write and/ or rewrite that are coming out. and one's a ghost gonna be a ghost story, uh, which I love because it it has social commentary because it has to do with uh, racism and the mm-hmm. civil war. And then the other one is a revenge flick, more tried and true trope. Uh, I think the revenge flick is gonna shoot in spring. And uh I'll be the bad guy in that. <laughs> I get to Oh, the ghost story is what I'm really excited about though, because I get to be the good guy in that. I get to be the hero. Or the Does that happen very often or no? No, I'm not usually the hero. My I'm kind of the hero in Beasts of the Field, but he's really an anti-hero because he's he's duplicitous and He's manipulative and also manipulated and uh, all sorts of other things. But he's also an underdog, and you can see where and how he's being manipulated and that he's blind to some things, and that's kind of his tragic flaw. So he's kind of a tragic character, I guess, in a way. Um, And I don't get to play that very often, so that was nice. I have a really... Uh, I hope it came out. We filmed that in a hurricane. Oh, so, no. I mean, it was pouring rain most of the time. And there were times we had to just get in the car and stop shooting because it was totally hopeless. Um, so it was a real mess. Uh, but if it, if it comes out, there's a really beautiful uh, monologue I have in that that I hope doesn't go on the
0: cutting room floor. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Now, something that you had uh, mentioned uh, in, in the description of some of the things that uh, you've got coming up and has been a theme throughout the episode is the idea of, of social commentary in, in art. And uh, before we go, I want to ask, is that something that's important to you when you are either writing or choosing projects to find things that have a social commentary? Or is it sort of
1: 50-50? Hmm. I don't have to have it, but I get excited if it's there. Certainly some of my scripts are all about that. Uh I I would say easily 50% of my scripts have that in it. Even the very first script I ever wrote um was a lot of uh, social commentary. I think to some degree that is one of the functions of art, right? It's not it's not the function, but I think that's one, and uh, it's an interesting one. It's an intriguing one. I certainly think it's a worthy one. Um, so yeah, I find that exciting and interesting and intriguing. Um, I don't have to have it. Certainly, Evil Dead Part Two. Is not social commentary particularly, but I love it. So I, I mean, I think we could learn lessons from the Evil Dead Part Two. <laughs> Probably <laughs> check who you're renting cabins from. <laughs> don't read things you don't know what they mean. <laughs> I mean, honestly,
0: what what a great lesson. But
1: uh, yeah, so uh, to me, it's a it's a it's a bonus, right? If it's there, I don't. It doesn't have to be there. Well, because, you know, art art is many things. Sometimes art can be a reflection, and sometimes art is a a window. And uh, so it depends on what you're trying to do right, with your art, how much of that is going to be social commentary and how much of it isn't.
0: Well, as someone who wears many different hats and does so many different things, what's cool is that you probably get to test out all of those different functions of art and and the things that you do
1: oh total i think so i like to think so uh (laughs) i certainly you know i mean love that girl was nothing like um say uh, well beast of the field right they're very different animals no pun intended uh they're psychologically very different. They're eliciting different thoughts and different emotions. And but if you asked me which is more important, is it more important to learn a lesson or is it more important to laugh at something and and feel joy? Right. Mm, those are equally important parts of life. It's kind of like, is it more important to Face your fears or to face your sadness. Right. Scream or cry. They're both important. Or take a moment and escape both of those things too.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And when you think back over the course of just this conversation, we talked about the many facets of what horror can do and the boundaries that we can push in the commentary and. The importance of escapism, but the importance of facing things. And uh, it's just great to know that there are people out there like yourself who are creating and ticking off those boxes and creating new boxes all the time. So thank you for what you do and what you bring to our genre. And uh, yeah, for people who want to discover more about you, where can people find
1: you? Oh, gosh, I'm everywhere. Uh, I have a main website uh, landing page which is just gregoryblair.info couldn't be easier okay. uh, and that gives you links to everything else but i've obviously i'm on IMDb i'm on Facebook i'm on Twitter i'm on Instagram I think I'm on Pinterest. I'm probably on other things that aren't coming into my head at the moment. First guest to mention Pinterest. Uh, uh, so- <laughs> I, I, I did. I know. I was like, who does anyone who uses that? But, you know, what? I actually used it for, of all things, believe it or not, recipes, because when I became vegan and I was going to make all my own food, I figured I better figure out how to do it because I don't know. I never knew how to cook. So, do you now get the, I do. the aggressive
0: emails where we've
1: found 18 pins for you? I used Pinterest oh, once no. for
0: Halloween decorations like 10 years ago. And like once a day, they'll be like, here's 17 pins
1: about how I'm, to make
0: like skeletons out of pine cones. I'm
1: very, <laughs> very good about making sure to check all the boxes that say never contact me about anything ever or I will kill you. Well, you are already (laughs) better than I at this.
0: Uh, Gregory, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate uh, everything, all the insight and uh, conversation that you brought. Uh, Listeners, as you uh, heard, Gregory is involved in so many things. So please go and check out some of uh, his work, both written, directed, and acted in. And uh, yes, thank you again. Well, thanks for having me. It
1: was a blast.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Varady. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast. Executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, Lashawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pellettione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.